Welcome to episode 408 of Troubadours and Rakan Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a very environmentally conscious conversation with environmental law attorney, professor, and director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals out of Denver, Colorado. Our regular contributor, Michael R. Harris. We discuss how the Biden administration is doing with regard to the environment, some different ways of looking at conservationism, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service working with the NRA, rewilding, and the human connection to all things on Earth, among other things. A very interesting conversation with our good friend Michael R. Harris this week. We also have an EWSA titled Seekers, and we share an excerpt from the groundbreaking book by Peter Singer titled Animal Liberation, and a poem called Thursday Night. All of this, of course, will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 408 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
Seekers As another Valentine's Day comes and goes, I think of John and Zeev and Lavar, some of my homes. We have all talked together during this time, reveling with an existence sublime, with touches of consternation, discontent, relentless worry, profound sadness, the lightness of ephemeral yet deep joy. Since I was an immigrant boy looking at this land, this place, as a space to trace my race without personal distaste, despite some false facts and turned backs as spun for and from the masses of norm. Those people I talk with and with whom together we fight and do our best to navigate the history of perpetual injustice and conquest and wrong-headed might, those individuals I've hated and I've loved I realize when one of them passes on to a great beyond how important our time together was, its sincere humanity, as inside me some sort of energy was transferred, concurred, fulfilled, left to learn on its own, yet more wise through the dance of struggle, seeking to find a genuine compromise that our contemporaries and descendants alike, our friends, compatriots, foes, will understand. If not as directly from us, then somehow filtered to them through the collective. Our work together might resonate that we are all connected brothers and sisters, and that only objective faith in what is just, vital of integrity, heart, soul, will fuel love to reign and conquer hate. Thank you for teaching me how to better be consciously on this day into eternity. Turning the pages in this old book seems familiar. Might be worth a second look. Wrapping up dope in a paper bag. Talking to yourself, taking a drag. business, get what you're right. No one's sorry, you did it yourself. It's time to relax now and then give it hell. Someday, you'll find what you're looking for.
Hello, Michael Harris. Is that you? Yeah, you found me. <laughs> it's nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours yet again. Oh, it's great to be here. Be back. Michael Harris is an environmental law attorney. He's a professor and the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals. He is based in it's Denver, Colorado, right? Yes, you got it. Denver. And an old friend of mine, we we go way back, back into the 1990s. Oh, my. Oh, my. But uh, you look a lot younger than me. You're, you're doing well, I think. <laughs> I just use the same picture over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, we last time we spoke was before the... Uh, 2020 elections, and uh, we were wondering what was going to happen. The last few years, we've been talking on the program about what was indeed occurring, specifically with uh, regard to the natural environment via the um, administration of number 45 and some of his appointees and very significant uh, federal agencies, as well as uh, Republican um you know, party, the the support of a lot of his initiatives. Now, maybe it's a new day. What do you think so far, what you're saying w with uh, the Biden administration? Well, you know, I mean, there was a lot of good stuff right off the bat. I mean, we had the, you know, getting us back into the climate accords and signing executive orders that reinstated a lot of the major, you know, environmental policies from the Obama era. That's good stuff. And, um, yeah, we have high hopes that, you know, it'll trickle down so that, you know, the policies are, that are being implemented that aren't, you know, happening right at the White House um, start to look different, too. We do know, like, the Department of Justice has asked us to take a pause in all of our cases for 60 days because they want the, the new folks that are going to be at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and at the Bureau of Land Management uh, to be uh, given a chance to, to to sort of get up to date on the litigation and see which way they want to move. So we're hoping that we actually will be settling some of our cases in a favorable way, um, you know, because the new administration is going to want to, you know, take that stuff back. Um, so, so far, so good. Good, good signs, I think. And, and when you say yes, you're talking specifically about Friends of Animals, the organization you uh, you represent and work for? Yeah, I assume they've asked this um, uh, across the board with other litigation. But yeah, in our cases, uh, they've done that. For instance, we talked about in our last um, conversation about this lud ludicrous rule, excuse me, let me turn this off, by the uh, Trump administration that requires uh, hunting imagery on the duck stamps. These yeah. are stamps sold for the conservation of, uh, of wildlife. Uh, so we had that suit filed before the election occurred. And, uh, yeah, we just got asked to take a pause on that so the new people at Fish and Wildlife Service can see if they want to reconsider that. 
Excellent. Excellent. And I know you wanted to talk about the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, today a bit, too, in the in the NRA. And this was sort of a last-minute thing, wasn't it? Oh, my gosh. We're talking, uh, you know, exactly one week before the inauguration. Yeah, I saw the date on the document, the uh, MOA, Memora- uh, Memorandum of Understanding. It was, uh, I think, January 13, 2021. Yeah, and it purports to give the um, NRA a partnership with uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to promote the NRA's gun education and uh, early hunting uh, programs for 10 years. And uh, some of us read it to be even longer because it could only, uh, it could really only be dissolved uh, by uh, sort of the consent of both parties. So uh, even after 10 years, the NRA might just say we want to do another round or something. And uh, it's not only a week before the inauguration, this is the day the NRA filed for bankruptcy as well. So you got a you got an organization that I think you know people are widely aware of. I mean, it's not like they're you know not well known, and they've been around forever. Uh, obviously, they have a, a stain on their reputation for the way they react with all of the terrible school shootings and mass shootings, and their failure to take a stand on that. Um, but the reality is, is that they've been bleeding money, and internally they have. Um, it's filled with fraud, and I think you might have seen in news reports that some of the leadership, including the president, has been siphoning funds. And um, you know, it's just it's just a terrible organization, and it all comes tumbling down. You got the state of New York looking to uh, to dissolve them legally for fraud and deceit, uh, so they're relocating their headquarters to Dallas, and they file for bankruptcy. And it gets announced the same day they got this boondoggle of a of a new relationship with uh, the federal government and a and a conservation agency, <laughs> one that's supposed to, you know, be taking care of and be a steward for our wildlife, uh, giving a set of keys to one of the, you know, worst conservation record organizations you can imagine. Well, I think some folks and they, you know, themselves, the NRA would probably argue that what we do is conservation. You know, uh, the the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, their aim is is conservation. So is ours. And you know, if if um, if you have too many deer, for example, uh, they'll suffer. So you know, we want them not to suffer. So we'll send hunters hunters out. Uh, during seasons with permits and licenses and they'll kill a, a certain amount and then the the uh, deer will will not will not suffer because there won't be too many of them and so on what do you think of it i mean is, is that viable uh, an well, i think there's a group of people that some of them probably are nra members that um you know promote that type of um, belief that you just mentioned i think it's something that stems from early last century and Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders sort of conservation ethic that, you know, there's a lot of resources out there and, you know, there's enough to go around for the hunters too and we can manage deer populations. But but I think that that's a myth now. I, I think it's a dying myth that that is true. I mean, first of all, the living with that, um, 
that philosophy has decimated our uh, not only our animals, but our public lands um, over the last century. We don't have any wolves. Grizzly bears are barely hanging on. Regular bears are ba- barely hanging on. The deer population is completely mismanaged. We have things like chronic wasting disease um, becoming a huge factor among elk herds and deer herds throughout the country. Um you know, it's just it just is 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 a total disaster because we've cling to that belief, and the reality is is a large number of the people that purport to be engaged in that are doing this for sport and and because they uh, get either get a thrill from it or or it's you know something that they're clinging on to because it's you know for them uh, a recreational activity that they uh, grew up doing. And the reality is, and this is a big a big part of why this MOU was understood um, and signed, is um, it's dying, and and the number of hunters is just dwindling. We've talked about this before. Uh, it's less than probably around three to five percent of the whole U.S. population uh, would would check a box that they consider themselves to be a hunter, and that's gone down from being in the high twenties, low thirties. You know, back when you and I first met. <laughs> so right. uh, it's been a very quick downfall for these guys, and they're clinging to these programs to somehow get guns into the hands of children again, younger and younger, so that they could um, repopulate the hunting uh, group. And more importantly, for the NRA, they don't care if they're hunters or they just shoot guns at things, frankly. Um, a larger portion of their membership are just gun enthusiasts and, and gun radicals as opposed to uh, hunters that would consider themselves to uh, be a conservationist. And, you know, we, we did our due diligence. We went on their website and we looked all over. We couldn't find anything supporting the, their beliefs in conservation, just Second Amendment rights. So, so they're yeah they're not even uh, they've not walked the walk with with regard to conservation. No, they they have like these um, sort of um, sister or 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 maybe you just call them you know affiliated groups like a place I think one of them is called um, Conservation Force. It's really just one guy who sort of runs their. conservation quote-unquote um values and 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 the nra pumps some money into that program and that that organization from time to time but as an organization itself it's not something i think they've taken a big platform on until they get an opportunity to sign up with trump and the the trump kids probably to um to help uh, their fledgling organization survive through the public some public funding and public assistance. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a grifter's scam. It sounds like, which falls right in line with the Trump family. This this uh, yeah, when I'm looking at the MOU, it, it mentions some organization called the Partners for Fish and Wild. Uh, no, what is it? Yeah, the Partners for Fish and Wildlife. That's they want the USFWS, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and the NRA the National Rifle Association, to partner with this, to be in this group, Partners for Fish and Wildlife. 
Yeah, so the Partners for Fish and Wildlife is actually uh, established decades ago under, under um, I, I believe it's the uh, Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. And, it, and it's a partnership between the federal government and states. Um, and, it, and it is developed based upon this, again, dying philosophy that hunting and conservation have, you know, some type of um, bond between them. Uh, and the states in particular rely heavily on, at, on using hunting licensing fees to support their conservation programs. Way too heavily, in fact, because, again, the problem is, is that money's drying up and they don't have alternative sources. As, as a result, conservation programs are underfunded in the states. But so it was designed originally for the federal governments and states to work together uh, using money like from the from the duck stamps or from other conservation um, programs that the federal government runs. Uh, there was a tax on ammunition that was used to fund it. But it was designed to provide support to the state programs. Again, they, they're, they're misguided in my mind as well. But you can understand how that relationship would have developed, you know, in the six, 1960s, 1970s, when hunting was really touted as a big part of the state conservation programs. But that doesn't give them authority to bring in the NRA to, you know, um, benefit from that program as it still exists. Right. And I guess it's it's clear that the, the appointee to run the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from Trump uh, was of a, of the mindset that would fall in line with all of this uh, antiquated uh, thinking, whereas now, as you mentioned earlier, everyone's asked by the Justice Department to to hold off on on their on their concerns and their lawsuits because we have new appointees coming in. Uh, oh yeah. So yeah. It, it, our it, big hope is the Biden administration will say you know, settle this lawsuit. I mean, this thing we hope won't even, won't even, um, you know, get out of the gate very far. Are you chiming in on this one, on this MOU? Your, well, your organization? Oh, we fought, we fought a lawsuit over this. Yeah, we did just, uh, just a week and a half ago. Um, we challenged it, uh, that it, there's no law that would allow fish and wildlife service to put their signature on this agreement they have, you might have seen, they have a, a section in it called authorities. Yep, I did. And they just list every possible law they could think of. <laughs> but we have looked through every one of those, and they're just they're just completely unrelated to what this MOU is about. Um, yeah, the Fish and Wildlife Act of 1956, the Fish and Wildlife uh, Coordination Act, 16 U.S.C., and so on, National Wildlife Refuge System Administration Act. These are the authorities that they're saying they have. This is what legitimizes the, the scheme that they've come up with. Yeah, and the first two have to do with uh, promoting fisheries and some public coordination for fisheries. Uh, the Refuge System Act is exactly what it is. 
to establish and to administer wildlife refuges around the country. And you're fine with that. Oh, yeah. But none of them say you could, you know, enter into partnerships. And I guess for your listeners who aren't lawyers, um, a, a bedrock principle of of basically administrative law because Fish Wildlife Service is an agency, an administrative agency, is they have no like inherent power to do anything. Congress has to explicitly provide them authority to do something. And so we look through these statutes saying, okay, where can you plausibly see Congress saying, hey, enter into MOUs with private entities? And this would go even if like they entered into a MOU with uh, Friends of Animals, you right. know. Um, there's just no authority to do that. Again, the closest one, in a way, is the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act because it, it has the authority for them to enter into relationships with the states to promote hunting. But but that's it. It, it says states. It doesn't say, you know, anyone else. It doesn't say... The federal government. Uh, yeah, so it really takes this off the board. And then the last one is a secretarial order. That's basically uh, an attempt by um, the Secretary of Interior to give give uh, uh, itself authority to do that. And that it has to come from Congress. And, and so this is just, in our mind, should be a, a slam dunk case. We got a good judge in D.C., a former, he's a senior judge and a former Clinton appointee. So not a Bush, I'm um, not a Trump appointee. So that was good. Um, but our real hopes here is that, you know, we will just, you know, get an opportunity to sit down with the Department of Justice and Fish and Wildlife Service, and, and they're going to want to hopefully back out of this thing. All the new, yeah, all the new folks in charge. Yeah, why do they want a relationship with the NRA? Right. This is too close. Right, right. It makes total sense. Yeah, I don't know. And the NRA is not even that big. It's big in power, but I think there are 5 million members. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I've I've uh, had these conversations with folks in the past. They're not that big. Uh, they're just well known, and they have you know like Charles and Heston ran it for a while as a figurehead, and you know they're just well known. And but what they do well, of course, is they use all their money for one thing, right? To to pay off basically Republican members of Congress not to do anything. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's that, that that's why they're effective. You know, they're not they're not doing really anything else. That's it. And making bumper stickers. Right. They get into the psychology of a lot of voters saying you're going to lose your Second Amendment right if you don't support us. And that's such a valuable thing to be able to bear arms. Right. Yeah, that's right. So it's yeah, it's a it's it's a scam. <laughs> it well, is. Oh, boy, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Michael Harris. I don't want to keep you too much on this one. Good luck with the uh, with the the lawsuit. Maybe you won't even have to go there on this particular uh, MOU. And uh, I know you also are excited to talk with us a bit about uh, the lawsuit that you, you, uh, you're a part of in Colorado regarding uh, the, the hunting licenses that were made necessary, I guess, to to go and, and uh, access state lands there in Colorado. How things yeah. go there? Yeah, yeah. So same same uh, philosophy here, right? Uh, Colorado, like many other states, uh, re, uh, rely heavily on funding from hunting and fishing licenses 
uh, to support, you know, state parks and state conservation efforts. And um, it's a model that the states are sort of clinging to. Uh, and eventually, in my mind, it's going to fail. The money's just going to not be there. And we're going to have to look for other sources. Unfortunately, in Colorado, and you, some of your listeners might recall from our discussion last year, uh, they decided to try to just expand the pie by making more people buy hunting and fishing licenses. So for certain public trust lands, uh, they told people who were out there to, you know, birders or hikers or, you know, artists, uh, whoever was, was out there recreating on these lands and were not carrying guns or fishing rods, um, that, that in order to continue to use them, they had to purchase a hunting or fishing license. And that, of course, sounds absurd to us uh, um, and only, I think, um, gives the state um, an opportunity to say, hey, look at all the revenue that we raised uh, last year from hunting and fishing when really we don't know how many of those people were just there because um, to do other things, uh, recreate, but were forced to buy them. So we sued the state of Colorado over it. Uh, we survived a motion to dismiss our claims just uh, two weeks ago. But uh, we have uh, we have heard uh, and actually seen now that the Colorado uh, Wildlife um, Commission uh, is going to rescind that rule. And they're putting in place instead uh, the ability to buy a day recreation pass or an annual recreation pass. Um, you know, there's still a lot of folks who feel like it's um, – unfair to have to pay to use public lands and i i get that i used to be one i was i was in california when they started to make us pay to use u.s forest lands in southern california and i thought what you know i pay my taxes you know they're out there spending it on military um items and i have to pay to you know get out of my car and take a hike um but it's a reality and i think uh as i've gotten older, I mean, uh, it's a privilege to be able to use these lands. And uh, if that's what it's going to take for now, I would prefer to see taxes uh, on recreational goods, you know, so that it sort of comes in through the purchase of a nice Patagonia jacket or something. But, you know, uh, it is it is sort of heading this way right now where we're going to have to have passes to use public lands. And we already do for national parks and national monuments for the most part anyway so so for us this is good because it's you know, for one thing it'll make a clear line we'll be able to see where the revenue is really coming from and our hope is that we're going to be able to show over the next five to ten years that it that that it's not the hunters and the fishers who are paying for this these great lands and for the for the animals that are on them and their conservation that's a great point that's a great point and, and you know the the thing, I mean, the larger picture here, we're talking about specific uh, scenarios and trends, and, and they lead to ethical questions and pragmatic uh, uh, analysis of of uh, what how we could indeed sustain the the you know uh, the funding needs of our our natural environment and our our national treasures. Um, the the thing that I wonder is how do you see as as an advocate for other animals and, and the natural environment, generally speaking, uh, 
the, the the mindset that seems to be developing, from my view, at least, of, of most people uh, in, in terms of their sense of connection to other animals and, and the natural environment. It seems to me that connection is waning. People are, are less connected. Do you see that as an issue or no? And, and if, if it is... I, I think that, you know, it just sort of depends on where you live. I mean, I think that remains very true in the big urban centers. But but I don't feel that way necessarily with respect to the population generally. I mean, there's actually, in my mind, um, if we could popularize, that is, make the process for, for – um, for protecting animals and for conserving open space and public lands, if we can make it more democratic. See, this is the problem, is that because these agencies are funded by hunters, they coddle them. And so we have these anti-animal policies like, you know, no wolves, no bears, um, keep the herds, you know, um, in places that are accessible and all this kind of stuff. And when we can get rid of that, and that's why we're focusing on this work, like destroying the MOU or attacking this, this facade of uh, buying hunting license or rec users. I think the, that we could start to see a more um, uh, open and democratic process that, that caters to what people who live in Colorado or live in, Wyoming or, or visit here really want to see and they really want to see you know nature that is nature not manipulated so one thing that came up since we last talked as well and this is really cool Colorado voters approved reintroduction of wolves hmm. into the state and so that's sort of what I believe I think that's what people want people want um to know that nature exists uh, and that they could visit it. Um, and it's these agencies and uh, their hunting lobbyists, and to some extent ag as well, that has prohibited these policies uh, from reflecting what I think most people do want. And so, and it's, and we also, with our new governor, he actually finally appointed someone to the wildlife commission here in Colorado who uh, actually gives a, darn about animals um my actually former former predecessor at uh uh at, at um the university of denver environmental law clinic where i used to work jay touchton was appointed by our governor to be on that commission which has usually been represented by like people in the ag industry or people in the hunting industry who um have a real like crabbed narrow view about what wildlife conservation should look like but I think if people had a chance to participate, they're interested in a lot more dynamic natural world than we currently have. And when you say dynamic, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, can you expound? Yeah, I think they, they want to see predators in the environment. I think they want to see habitats um, rewild as a term we, we often use, you know. Um, it's, it's very, it's beautiful out and out outdoors, but it's not very dynamic. There's not a lot 
of diversity of species uh, in most um, public lands and open space and state lands. Um, they're limited to the deer and to the elk and to a few others. And I think people want to see what it was like before they all these predators and all these other animals went away. I think we're starting to like need that even more. Yeah, I, I you know, we are animals too. And I think that's our nature. And, uh, you know, when you say we need it even more, I think it is an, an instinctive sort of, uh, you know, an intrinsic. It's in our bones. Or if you believe soul, uh, in our soul, to, ha to have that kind of connection to the natural environment. So maybe, yeah. You yeah. Know. Every, our DNA has traces of every living thing that, ever walked on the earth before us right mm -hmm. because we're we're sort of when it comes to where we're at in the earth's sort of um uh development of uh, life you know we're at the far end of it from when it started right now so everything that walked the planet is in our dna and that that sort of gives us i think what you just said uh ew this sort of sort of built-in sense of where we are and what we belong to well said attorney michael r harris here on uh, troubadours and rock on tours a regular contributor i'm proud to say a good friend of mine uh he's a professor as well and you can tell by the the very clear uh dynamic way you explain these complicated issues you make it uh, very accessible and i appreciate it well, thank you. I hope that's reflected on my um, end-of-year evaluations once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mean from us? Yeah, you're, you're gonna get you're gonna get uh, all tens, and and uh, we're gonna increase your pay by twenty percent. Uh, perfect. Twenty percent <laughs> of nothing is nothing. Is nothing. But <laughs> nonetheless, we cherish the time we we uh, we have you on the program, and I look forward to our next conversation. Good luck with all the work you're doing, and of course, keep us posted. Thank you, E.W. You have a good one. Take care. I found this brand new gift Looking for somebody to share it with this brand new light Something within me All of my life There's so much Trouble in the world Surrounded By miracles There's so much hatred Undeserved But it will not work Cause still Our love Will be Received
just a brand new riff Looking for somebody to play it with I found this a brand new light Something within me all of my life There's so much trouble in the world Surrounded by miracles There's so much hatred undeserved But it will not work Cause still Our love Will be Received Better yet still My heart Is in need Of release Oh yeah still My love Will be Received Better yet still My heart Is in need And now, an excerpt from Peter Singer's groundbreaking book, Animal Liberation. This excerpt is titled, Morally Indefensible. We have always liked to think ourselves less savage than the other animals. To say that a person is, quote, humane is to say that he is kind. To say that he is, quote, a beast, quote, brutal, or simply that he behaves, quote, like an animal is to suggest that he is cruel and nasty. We rarely stop to consider that the animal that kills with the least reason to do so is the human animal. We think of lions and wolves as savage because they kill, but they must kill or starve. Humans kill other animals for sport, to satisfy their curiosity, to beautify their bodies, and to please their palates. Humans also kill members of their own species for greed or power, Moreover, humans are not content with mere killing. Throughout history, they have shown a tendency to torment and torture both their fellow humans and their fellow animals before putting them to death. No other animal shows much interest in doing so. While we overlook our savagery, we exaggerate that of other animals. The notorious wolf, for instance, villain of so many folktales, has been shown by careful investigation of zoologists in the wild, to be a highly social animal, a faithful and affectionate spouse, not just for a season, but for life, a devoted parent, and a loyal member of the pack. Wolves almost never kill anything except to eat it. If males should fight among themselves, the fight ends with a gesture of submission in which the loser offers to his conqueror the underside of his neck, the most vulnerable part of his body. With his fangs only an inch away from the juggler vein of his foe, the victor will be content with submission and, unlike a human conqueror, does not kill the vanquished opponent. In keeping with our picture of the world of animals as a bloody scene of combat, we ignore the extent to which other species exhibit a complex social life, recognizing and relating to other members of their species as individuals. When human beings marry, we attribute their closeness to each other, to love. And we feel keenly for a human being who has lost his or her spouse. 
When other animals pair for life, we say that it is just instinct that makes them do so. And if a hunter or trapper kills an animal or captures it for research or for a zoo, we do not consider that it might have a spouse who will suffer from its sudden absence. In a similar way, we know that to part a human mother from her child is tragic for both. But neither the farmer nor the breeder of pets and research animals gives any thought to the feelings of the non-human mothers and children whom he routinely separates as part of his business. Curiously, while people often dismiss complex aspects of animal behavior as, quote, mere instinct and therefore not worthy of comparison with the apparently similar behavior of human beings, these same people will also ignore or overlook the importance of simple instinctive patterns of behavior when it is convenient for them to do so. Thus, it is often said of laying hens, veal calves, and dogs kept in cages for experimental purposes that this does not cause them to suffer since they have never known other conditions. This is a fallacy. Animals feel a need to exercise, stretch their limbs or wings, groom themselves, and turn around, whether or not they have ever lived in conditions that permit this. Herd or flock animals are disturbed when they are isolated from others of their species, though they may never have known other conditions. And too large a herd or flock can have the same effect through the inability of the individual animal to recognize other individuals. These stresses reveal themselves in, quote, vices like cannibalism. Widespread ignorance of the nature of non-human animals allows those who treat animals in this manner to brush off criticism by saying that, after all, quote, they're not human. Indeed, they are not, but neither are they machines for converting fodder into flesh, nor tools for research. Considering how far the knowledge of the public lags behind the most recent findings of zoologists and ethologists who have spent months and sometimes years observing animals with notebook and camera, the dangers of sentimental anthropomorphism are less serious than the opposite danger of the convenient and self-serving idea that animals are lumps of clay which we can mold in whatever manner we please. Animals themselves are incapable of demanding their own liberation or of protecting against their condition with votes, demonstrations, or boycotts. Human beings have the power to continue to oppress other species forever or until we make this planet unsuitable for living beings. Will our tyranny continue, proving that morality counts for nothing when it clashes with self-interest, as the most cynical of poets and philosophers have always said? Or will we rise to the challenge and prove our capacity for genuine altruism by ending our ruthless exploitation of the species in our power? Not because we are forced to do so by rebels or terrorists, but because we recognize that our position is morally indefensible? I'm a
Thursday night. Doritos, fruit snacks, mismatched cups of butt cereal bowls, and a half a pint of beer. Look up and outside the kitchen window. I see there near the swing set are three black and white-tailed deer. So queer do I feel today, teeming with heavy, twisted, misanthropic cheer. Episode 408 of Troubadours and Rockon Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Michael R. Harris. Also, I'd like to thank Peter Singer and these musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Leanne Lahavas, Neil Young and Crazy Horse, Citizen Cope, The Rolling Stones, J.J. Kale, 
Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.